Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Coalstar Technologies. I'm Ravi Boundy, founder of Space Impulse. Hi, I'm Raphael Rodkin, founder of E2MC Space Ventures. I listen to the Coalstar Project. And I listen to the Coalstar Project. And I listen to the Coalstar Project. And the amount of times in the early days, literally the first couple of months when I was having my first seed investors get interested in, in Oxford Space Systems, the amount of time an investor would literally just knock on the door and walk into our office unannounced because of the particular location we were in. Um, I needed you know, my smart engineers that could instantly uh, jump up and kind of shake the hand and smile and kind of not kind of you know, mumble and look at their feet. You know, everybody is a salesman, I think, uh, in the first days of an early stage business. It's time for another episode flickering, flickering <laughs> of the Cold Star Project. <laughs> We've got those UK connections. I'm here with uh, Mike Lawton. He is the founder at Oxford Space Systems. And here's something cool. He is Barclays Bank's UK startup entrepreneur for 2018 for the progress and achievements of Oxford Space Systems. Thanks for being here, Mike. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. So I was excited to connect with you because uh, we're going to move in season three of the Cold Star Project to talking with venture capitalists who fund space companies. And with your background and the things you talk about, I have discerned that you are kind of in between the regular space business owner and a VC. You, you seem to have a lot of knowledge in the fundraising area. Yeah. So why don't we begin, I guess, between uh, I'm going to refer to your LinkedIn profile here. Uh, explain the difference for us, if you could, but between um, Oxford Space Systems and Oxford Dynamics. These are two companies and they seem to be operating in parallel. Uh, yeah, so Oxford Space Systems is the entity that I founded just over six and a half years ago when I spotted a, an opportunity that I think was, was untapped in the space sector. Uh, and I noticed that as satellites were getting smaller and smaller, um, I noticed that the one neglected area was was with antenna systems. Mm. And fortunately, the laws of physics prevail. So it doesn't matter how small you make that satellite, you've still got to maintain what we call a link budget, which is your ability to talk to the ground. And I didn't see anybody actually optimizing uh, antennas. So I thought, well, okay, there's, there's maybe a niche there for or a novel antenna company that can tackle that problem head on. Who's going to make the world's most uh, storage efficient antennas? And that was really the foundation story behind Oxford Space Systems. Uh, and a lot of hubris in the industry from the uh, from the incumbents. You know, don't bother starting the business, Mike. You know, we're going to crush you. Uh, and so my ears, that was music because I thought you're only going to say that if there's a business worth defending. Mm. So that energized me uh, even more. So long story short, here we are six and a half years later with Oxford Space Systems being one of the highest valued tech startups um, in the UK, a team of uh, 50 really smart people, our own custom premises, largest clean room at the Harwell Space Cluster uh, and contracts uh, internationally. So OSS is very much on a really interesting growth uh, trajectory. So along that journey, uh, I had many engagements with the VC community, as you might imagine. Um, but like a lot of companies, it gets to a certain point and the founder perhaps isn't the most appropriate character to have in, in, in that business. So didn't exactly fall out with the VCs, but, you know, it was clear that maybe it was time that I kind of moved on. So I said no big falling out, but I still remain associated with Oxford Space System. 
systems and an ad hoc advisory capacity. And of course, I'm still the founder. Um, but that then gave me the opportunity to go and start another business, which is Oxford Dynamics. So some of the ideas that weren't appropriate or mature enough really uh, for Oxford Space Systems to look at, that's what Oxford Dynamics will be doing and is doing. So that's going to develop its own portfolio of intellectual property. Okay. okay. Can you give us a sneak peek into what one of those areas might be? Uh, yes. So <laughs> there is a slight connection to space. Um, what Oxford Dynamics is working on are some very novel ideas to, drew, to do with drone uh, technology. Uh, these are associated with increasing the commercial viability of drones when they're used in dense urban uh, applications uh, and also the technology um, has applications for the defense and security communities. I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit too vague here but there's a lot of IP riding yeah. on the idea and I'm currently going through the process of, of protecting um, uh, the IP. So I'll leave it at that. It's going to be some neat drone um, technology. Okay. Uh, there's also an idea to do with um, personal protection equipment, PPE, uh, that I actually had around about four or five years ago. And with the whole explosion with coronavirus and, and COVID-19, it seemed a great, uh, great time to, to dust off that, that idea as well. And that's actually been presented to the UK government. And uh, I'll know actually tomorrow whether that idea uh, receives some initial seed funding. So yeah, okay. exciting times. Well, if so, you'll have to come back and tell us about it. So uh, there's a question about antennae that I did want to ask that's not included on our list because I'd forgotten about it and I just remembered. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, get the idea when you think of an antenna as like a car antenna, like not the shark fin thing, but the tall yeah. fin thing. And I remember looking at some small sat pictures uh, from an assembly plant and they had an antenna there that looked like two balls of yarn kind of clustered together like two fists and it was coiled right and like so I, I remember I know nothing about this particular subject is that can antenna really look like that uh, you probably saw it else? in its stowed, you probably saw it in its stowed configuration yeah. uh, rather than deployed uh, so with the, with CubeSats, I think basically grabbing the headlines and CubeSats is about how can we do things as cheap and as quickly as possible. So rather in elegant ways of storing what are probably you've just described a large dipole antennas. So when that thing is allowed to explosively right. release in space, it should end up hopefully having a much more uh, uniform uh, architecture for its elements. Okay. Okay. So it's just bundled that way for transport, and then once it releases, it'll look like what we know and love. Uh, it should do. Um, you can imagine some customers are a little bit nervous about having antennas deploy uh, mm -hmm. in a chaotic manner. The industry loves predictability. So that would be the bargain basement way of, mm -hmm. of uh, stowing an antenna that you've just described. Interesting. Okay. It looked very cool and the guys were wearing all their, you know, static-free equipment and that kind of thing. So let's move into um, uh, business management side of things. I really want to find out about your perspective, Mike, on this because I think you have a, a very good one. Other than the, the lifeblood of cash, which is an obvious one, what other measures have you seen as important in uh, your area of focus, which you say is early-stage, high-tech businesses? I think out of, the, out of the trap, it's about getting that right team, getting the right team initially. That dynamic is so, so important. Uh, and I've learned that no one will have the same level of fire in their belly as perhaps the founder. But there's a trick in finding those really enthusiastic people to come and work with you um, uh, initially. And I've been very lucky 
at, at doing that. And although you want really smart people with a strong air of specialism, maybe it's aerospace engineering or materials, you actually also want people that don't mind mucking in. So some great all-rounders. And the amount of times in the early days, literally the first couple of months when I was having my first seed investors get interested in, in Oxford Space Systems, the amount of time an investor would literally just knock on the door and walk into our office unannounced because of the particular location we were in. Um, I needed you know, my smart engineers that could instantly uh, jump up and kind of shake the hand and smile and kind of not kind of you know, mumble and look at their feet. You know, everybody is a salesman, I think, uh, in the first days of an early stage business. So that great all-rounder uh, characteristics is what I look for um, uh, as well. And uh, if I could wave my magic wand, you know, it'd be fantastic on stage talking about the technology, but then they also don't mind popping back to the office and cleaning the toilets before the investor you know, comes around for a bit of due diligence. Um, so great all around, there's a lot of enthusiasm and, uh, and hopefully um, people that like that level of challenge will stay with the business as it grows. Because I'm sure you know, as a business matures, you then start to need different types of talent coming in but I think it's great if you can hang on to that core team because they do they do instill a certain mentality and enthusiasm throughout the business okay very, uh, and the other thing wise. you need the other thing you need is a lot of luck uh, as well <laughs> okay you know, right place right time um actually my lead investor in, in Oxford Space Systems that was a chance meeting hmm. uh, in a coffee shop believe it or not and uh I started talking to him uh, and I said, well, you want to hear about my space business then if you're, if you're an investor. And he actually said, Mike, um, let me just stop you there. I don't do space because it takes too long and costs too much, but I'm going to walk to my next meeting. So you've got two minutes to convince me <laughs> otherwise. And uh, that's what I did. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, you need a lot of luck, a lot of chance meetings and, and you go to parties. You never know who you're going to meet. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but you've got that 30-second commercial ready to go there. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing I say to, to any budding entrepreneur and founder. Yeah, have, have your 10-second pitch, your 30-second pitch, and then that two-minute conversation that you can literally just do on autopilot because mm -hmm. you never know who you're going to bump into. Yeah. Right. Is there anything specific that you do during interviews to identify that kind of well-rounded person who's ready to jump into any role? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I ask a lot about kind of personal interests and uh, examples of how they've helped other people. And I ask them to describe situations in previous employment. Um, you know, what was the, the one thing that kind of most annoyed you about a previous place of employment? Mm -hmm. But then more importantly, what did you do to resolve that? You know, are you someone who wants to help solve problems? And that kind of flushes out uh, whether they're a, a good fit. Uh, and the other thing I've learned to, to flush out uh, whether uh, a great fit is uh, I say, if I can give you a whiteboard at one end, that draw a line at one end, that's the maximum salary you can take out of the business. But there's absolutely no shares, no, no, no equity involved with that. At the other end, that's maximum equity and literally kind of subsistence salary. Kind of where would you put yourself on, on, on that board? And I think it goes straight to paying the maximum amount I can have in my bank account at the end of each month. They're probably not right for the startup. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're just kind of ch chasing the dollar. Right. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're probably not the best fit for a startup business where you want people born into that long-term journey. Uh, and that's always been a great filter, I think. Mm. I like that one. I haven't heard that one before. 
So very, very cool. And for interns, actually, yeah, when I get interns, because I get inundated with, with folks at university wanting to come and join. So how do you pick the smart interns that hopefully you can then turn into, uh, you know, future employees? So now anybody who wants to, to do a placement, um, I forego kind of looking at CVs and things mm -hmm. initially. Uh, I say, send me a two minute pitch video. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you're going to do for my business which means they need to go and research the markets we're in role in just the normal closed way of just summarizing a CV. Because right. uh, all due respect to anybody studying at university, they're all pretty much carbon copies of everybody. Everybody's got a great CV, you've all studied the same subject, you'll get roughly the kind of the same grade. So how the hell do I differentiate? So a two minute pitch video, and I always say when I send the brief, at the end of the video, tell me your best geek joke. And that really flushes out the personality. Yeah. Uh, huh. And I've had some phenomenally good, uh, some phenomenally good videos. Uh, one guy ended up said, "If you want to know the punchline, you've got to interview me," which showed huh. showed a lot of personality. <laughs> the open loop. I love it. I love exactly. it. The, the copywriter in me thinks that's fantastic. <laughs> Very cool. Going back to your LinkedIn profile, Mike. Uh, the first line of your about section talks about. Uh, this is a quote, getting things wrong slightly less often than I get them right. And I appreciated that, that honest to you, that honest perspective. So the question I've got for you is how do you know when you've gotten things wrong? What are the indicators and how have you learned to see them sooner? Uh, you know what, there's always an amount of time that elapses from a decision till you know you've got it wrong. And I think this still comes in. How, how quickly can you compress that time down so you can steer the ship back on the right course? Um, and I know, especially in engineering circles, we try to be incredibly analytical and we try and quantify decisions. But I think the more times I've been involved in, in businesses and decision-making, the more and more, you know what, I'm leaning towards trusting my gut feel. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, we probably have a gut feel for a reason. Millions of years of evolution have evolved that feeling. Uh, and I think it's a, you know, a great way of perhaps filtering through some of those uh, some of those decisions. So if it feels wrong, you know, it probably is going to be wrong. Um, hmm. So that, that's my kind of evolved filter, if you like. Awesome. Well, I'm speaking with Mike Lawton of Oxford Space Systems, Oxford Dynamics. I'm, I'm curious here, what you believe drives technological innovation? Is it more marketplace interests or is it personal interests of individuals wanting to go out there and change the world? Uh, well, I think it's, it's actually both. So I think if it's in a startup, uh, an entrepreneur, then I think it's a desire to, to really change the world. And I don't think there's anything more frustrated than an entrepreneur. You know, the, the world won't change fast enough to their view of, of thinking. Uh, uh, and I think that's a great driver for technological change. But those innovations that we end up actually hearing about obviously have to be underpinned by a solid business model. I think there's enough entrepreneurs out there that probably have started their first businesses, but maybe have not focused perhaps as strong as they should have done on the business case as well. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, a lot of tech entrepreneurs are driven by a desire to change the world, but then very quickly that business model driven by hard economics kicks in. Right. Yeah, we see this a lot in space where the interest in developing a technological capability is where it starts. Uh, so that's what I've seen is, is uh, 
the interest in developing technical capabilities, and then the sudden realization of, uh, oh, <laughs> we've got to oh, make sure some money with this. Right. <laughs> Someone's going to buy this, yeah. Right, so you, you really do need a customer, folks. Um, build it and they will come is really not the way the world works, despite what the movie says. So uh, what organizations, Mike, are you watching in uh, UK new space? Uh, yeah, I think we've got a really exciting ecosystem uh, in the UK and uh, it seems every week you can read about a new UK company bursting onto the scene. I think that's a great reflection of how the government has supported the space sector. Uh, I think there's 10 sectors they want to, to uh, grow as they see as strategically important to the UK. So space is one of those benefactors. Um, I think one company that I'm really quite interested in because I, I know the guys that founded it, uh, and this is In Space Missions Limited, uh, founded by two of the ex-directors from Surrey Satellite Technology. Uh, they left and founded uh, In Space um, about a year and a half ago now, I think it is. Uh, and what the guys are doing, um, they are operating in a really niche area of working out that there are a number of people developing payloads that ultimately will perhaps need their own constellation. So they're providing a one-stop shop of getting your payload on orbit quicker and cheaper than other folks have done before. And their secret is they've designed their own highly configurable, highly scalable uh, bus. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, they've done some neat things inside in terms of the technology to massively collapse the amount of interconnects and harnessing. So it's quite an elegant solution to get payloads on orbit quickly. And if that particular configuration works out, then that automatically becomes the satellite that perhaps you'll want to commission for your constellation. So it's a great way of getting that first IOD money, but then being able to build out and supply constellations for um, for customers globally. And because of the way they structured the company, it means they um, are really attractive to the UK MOD. And the MOD, the Ministry of Defence in the UK, really wants to start um, maximising its use of space for sovereign defence implications. And the way in space have structured their business, this scalable platform actually hits the sweet spot for what the MOD wants to achieve. Um, as well. So it's a lovely little business model they put together, growing rapidly. And I think a great sign that they're getting things right is that investors are approaching them uh, to see if there's interest uh, in external capital. Okay. What is the art behind you there? It's a black and white print. Oh, that's yeah. vaguely rocketish. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it, it's, uh, I bought that uh, when I was in the US at the Kennedy uh, Space Center. Mm. It's actually one of the first, um, well, sketches or technical drawings of the Apollo launcher. Mm. So it's one of NASA's uh, official technical drawings now available nice. to buy. Yeah, it's really neat. <laughs> yeah. when you, when you it's look big at, too. It looks three by four or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's quite. It's quite a big, quite a big picture, and I've actually got another one on the other wall of the lander, uh, the lunar lander module. Uh, it's great to see kind of hand-drawn technical drawings, mm -hmm. just kind of remind you how far we've come, but just how ambitious those projects were. I think. Right, right, and uh, yeah, and now we don't have to worry quite so much about tolerances and drawings and fitting layers together because we've got <laughs> AutoCAD. <laughs> oh boy. I, what did I? I spoke to a guy at the Kennedy Space Center, and he. Uh, uh, we're near one of the um, kind of uh, rocket engines. Uh, uh, and he said, you know what? We could never build these again today. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? 
and he said, well, these were artisan. Uh, you know, we had kind of the drawings, but for them to actually work, there was a lot of skill in handcrafting, machining the components. All that skills have now retired or unfortunately died. So there's no way we could build these engines today. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah, it's kind of scary, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's like, hmm, we will have to adapt or relearn or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, we read about, you know, losing technologies from ancient civilizations. Mm -hmm. you think, how is that possible? You think, right. Well, actually, we managed to lose the technology from, you know, just uh, 50 years ago. Right. I wasn't going to go there, but you did. <laughs> so that's cool. I remember seeing a video about, uh, I think it was a Dutch company that had developed some kind of mesh product that could be uh, very hot on one side and would not transfer the heat to the other. And it had been around since I think the 60s or something. And they had lost the technology to make this thing. And you can think about how many applications that could be useful in. So. I thought, I thought you were going to start describing a, a magical product called Starlight, this now mm. kind of infamous stuff. Have you, have you heard about Starlight? No, no. Huh. It was a, it's a great story. It's on, on Wikipedia. And if you Google, uh, or if you go onto YouTube and just Google Starlight, and that's L-I-T on the end, mm. it was actually invented, believe it or not, by a British hairdresser, a very eccentric inventor. Uh, and he claimed he'd come up with a very cheap thermal coating that, out could, that could outperform anything on the market. And at the time, with this crazy live science TV program in the UK called Tomorrow's World. Uh -huh. So he was kind of brought on the program as kind of like the joke element. That he's going to fail in this live demonstration. And he got an egg and he uh -huh. painted it with this kind of starlight stuff, got out a blowtorch, literally got one <laughs> side of the coating glowing red hot, instantly took the blowtorch away and cracked it and it was completely liquid. Huh. And that completely exploded interest uh, in, in the product and Starlight, he had uh, you know, NASA chasing all the defense guys, but he would never reveal the formulation. And, hmm. uh, he, and every deal people tried to do with him fell through. And the secret of Starlight was, was taken to his grave. And, huh. uh, and, he, and he claimed it needed no exotic materials. It was a combination of hairdressing chemicals and chemicals and products you could find in a domestic kitchen. Mm. Crazy stuff. <laughs> Another so useful fish oil, oil folks. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Huh. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company 
a space company. And that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So. If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire? Or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. Well, uh, speaking of uh, sort of making up things in a cauldron like that, you talk about the dark arts of raising finance for tech businesses. <laughs> let's, let's educate our space listeners on some concepts in this area. Where, where, where do you begin? What is, what is the dark arts of raising finance? I mean, obviously, it's all got to be legal. Where do you start with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think the number one mistake I see when tech entrepreneurs pitch for money they always, always talk about the great technology they've developed and they love talking about the features of the technology. And that's completely understandable because, you know, they live and breathe the tech and that's what gets them excited. But they don't understand that the audience they're in front of wants to know how you're going to make them rich. Mm -hmm. It's not about how great your technology is, it's about the business case. So when I was pitching Oxford Space Systems, I always talked about the pain of the problem I was solving. I translated that into hard financial value for my end customer. I almost let the investors say, well, okay, my, what is the damn technology then? Uh, so I almost kind of get the investors to kind of open up mm -hmm. you know, that conversation. So I think the, the number one rule for the dark art is talk about the business case, show that you understand how investors think. Um, uh, and that will transform, I think, uh, any pitch. Right. Um, I think the, the kind of dark art lesson number two, we touched on it earlier, and that's learn to summarize. You, be, you should get that pitch off in 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and 60 seconds, you know, and, and a couple of minutes tops. And I think I've got it down to, to well, I must have it down to fine art from, from the you know, quantum of money we've raised for OSS. Um, but I won a, a NASA technology pitch competition and you were given 180 seconds and at the end of 180 seconds, the Jaws theme would play and they would literally drag you off stage and you had to articulate your entire business case. 
So who's going to buy it? How are you going to develop the technology? Market traction, and then of course exit strategy, and getting all that down in three minutes without any techno jargon and babble is an art. Um, so I, I advise any tech entrepreneur that if you can nail that, then you're pretty much home and dry, assuming your business case makes up, of course. Right, right. I love it. And and we've, again, some of this stuff will sound basic when we say it, but look around, right? Go out there and uh, and look at what founders of companies actually do. And it's not just in space. It's in software as a service, tech development, all kinds of places where folks who want to change the world, super excited. And like you say, justifiably so about what they're developing. But at the end of the day, it's far less important to the investors than the business model. And you're explaining your understanding of that in a concise way. So, wow. Uh, any, any other things that folks should be looking at in that finance area? Scalability. Um, mm -hmm. Proving or demonstrating you understand what scalability means, um, a sustainable commercial business. And I think this is acutely true in the space sector. Mm -hmm. I think there's still a strong perception from investors. Well, isn't this just kind of one-off science missions or just ones and twosies here? Where are you actually gonna sell 500 of these, 3000 of these bits of technology? You know, show me your expanding customer base. Get me excited about the size of this potential market. Um, so if you're pitching, especially if it's hardware, understanding how you scale hardware into a production environment because that's another skill set completely from the, the R&D world so showing that you understand scalability and sustainability of a commercial business model is, is absolutely critical as well. Okay uh, Mike are there any books or video presentations or something that you've seen recently that you would recommend other people go look at? Um, you know, I actually spend a lot of time looking at material outside of, of the technology sphere. Um, so I've been looking at a lot of material on well, a lot of TED talks, actually. I love, I love the TED talks uh, and I love things on emotional intelligence about mm. understanding how to engage and judge reactions from, from, from the audience. I can't think of a specific video that's jumping to mind, um, at, um, at the moment, but I would suggest to any tech entrepreneur break away from the tech a little bit and understand the the emotional intelligence angle uh, to, to your work uh, and what you're trying to achieve and there's tons of great stuff out there especially from the ted stage on emotional intelligence right well let's finish up then with a with a question to dig in a little bit on that because i think it, it's important to you obviously and uh, and i can attest to the value of it uh people don't make decisions rationally <laughs> they think they do but <laughs> and they yeah. justify rationally but they make them emotionally so what what would you like to share about the value of understanding emotional intelligence and applying it in a in a fundraising situation uh i think this applies to, to mainly to males um actually men don't like admitting that you know when they're wrong when we make mistakes it's that classic alpha male ego so i think having a bit of hubris knowing that you make mistakes and being honest that you are fallible uh, as well and you know what cut other people some slack as well uh, especially if you're, you're building a team you are going to make mistakes this is unexplored territory you should be pushing the envelope so allow other people the latitude to make mistakes as well because you know what life is a journey and we're all on this journey 
for once and we're never going to come back this way again so we're all constantly learning so i think if you realize that uh, and just be a little bit more kind of honest with yourself honest with people around you and i think that honesty then echoes in the eyes or is seen in the eyes of the investors they don't suspect that there's any bs there you know you're admitting you make mistakes perhaps you show a few of the mistakes you've made along the way to get in front of this investor i think showing that you're not some kind of some kind of infallible superman i think is much much more important i think to to an investor than pretending that you're infallible and you're going to change the world without making a single mistake right, <laughs> right. yeah a, a little self-honesty is good uh, oh, and, and this humility that yeah that you're heading very humility yeah a bit of honesty yeah Excellent. i think the world would be a better place if we just to make you know what we do screw up a lot right right <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, this has been Mike Lawton, the founder at Oxford Space Systems and something new called Oxford Dynamics. Mike, where can people connect with you or find out more about Oxford Dynamics? Uh, well, we have a website. Mm -hmm. uh, it is www.oxdynamics, so oxdynamics.com. Uh, and of course, on LinkedIn, you can, you can track me down. Uh, as we said earlier, I've got a filter on there. <laughs> Says, unless I've met with you, I probably won't connect with you. But um, that's just to hopefully filter out some of the time wasters and, mm. and the people trying to sell me uh, perpetual motion machines and zero gravity. But most rational, sane people I connect with. Excellent. All right, Mike. Thanks for being here and sharing some of your uh, knowledge today. Great. Thanks for the opportunity. Good fun. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.